I'm Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of RackN and your host for the Cloud 2030 podcast. This episode starts with the question of what is technical debt and how does it apply to large language models or LLMs? And we dive into a really interesting conversation about what is technical debt in which we transform the conversation from technical debt into system and code maintenance, which is probably a much better way to think about the challenges we have in maintaining the infrastructure, systems, code, data, data lakes that we have to deal with on an everyday basis. And from there, we go into a fascinating conversation about how do we maintain, store, track, and update the LLMs themselves? How do we know and manage which model is being used. When we retire a model, how do we get it back? Really fascinating conversations triggered by this technical debt discussion. I know you will enjoy the conversation. I have a question, Rob, about today's today's topic. Okay. We talk about LLMs and and technical debt. I'd like to ask everybody, who do we think actually pays down or pays for technical debt here? I mean, just in general, not even with LLMs, but when we talk about technical debt. Oh, that's a great framing. Yeah. we, We talk about, you know, somebody's somebody's paying the price you know somebody's paying it down all right you can obviously identify who's going to be impacted but you know who pays it down and and you know <laughs> there's 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 the developer community there's yeah. the developer community cuz they, they you know they they labor under you know the this complete you know tug of war between get the new stuff in you know hit the targets get your you know kpis and then you know oh we got to pay down technical debt so you got to you got to work on that you've got operations where they're sitting there generally um dealing with the the fallout of, mm. of technical debt you know they are their operations themselves are either less efficient they have they're likely to have more anomalous behavior all of all of that type of things and they have to add on new pieces of software to kind of manage the the erratic behaviors obviously have the customer base, but are they really paying it down? So I love this question. So I think one of the challenges is that we use technical debt in a lot of different ways, um, right? Because, you know, there's sort of the, the one that I people, I think, sort of assume, which is errors or just errors or bugs or things that were done wrong that got left in the code base. Um, and I, I so, yeah, I, I think, right, those those. Actually, let me let me define, give you a couple of different types of technical debt that, that I'm thinking of, and then um, 
And, and then we can talk about it. I think that there's an efficiency technical debt where you did something not not very efficiently. It works, but it's you you've you you're left with a way that doesn't scale or is, is expensive or slow. I think there's a, a technical debt in divergence, meaning that you have multiple people who are doing things that, doing the same thing different ways. And instead of collaborating so that you're sharing work, you are doing divergent work, which is mm-hmm. right. I, I actually, I actually see that as a type of debt. So instead of like being like, Oh, I'm going to work with this person and we'll use the same code. You're like, Oh, I'm going to fork their code and I'm going to make a copy. <laughs> and, and so now you've created two different ways to do it both right, but not compatible. Um, and I think that there's another technical debt that is inertia in the system where you've got something that you've made harder to improve or change. And so what you've got is you've got working code that's that you've built in a way that is very difficult to upgrade, patch, change. So, so it's right to me, technical debt is always should always be working code or apparently working code. Working systems. That, that, that's, working, that's working the, systems. The, that's the source of technical debt. That's the, the I, home of technical I, debt. I, I'm not sure yeah. I agree with that. Okay, yeah. uh, or at least with it being the source. Um, I, I, I would also argue that there's one more type of technical debt, uh, and that's that's the one that I see more often, and that okay. is compliance debt. In in cases where a system needs to go live within a certain amount of time and the mvp does not require a certain configuration and configuration is a keyword here we might come back to later however however using that configuration if there was enough time would be ideal for xyz reasons so that is a technical debt and and those are the kind of technical debt that tickets i usually open and say like when when I when I do a review of changes, say, okay, this is not how I would have done it for these reasons, but I understand that we are under pressure to to get this done ASAP because explicit reason. So I will allow this, but we need to have a technical that t- ticket to review this at a later time. Um, again, like something, configuration, something you know, you 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 basically something that moves forward when you know that it has deficiencies under the covers. Yeah. yeah. So in in, mm-hmm. in this, so to me, this kind of technical that is a conscious suboptimal design decision. No, this is this that is, is still good enough. Alone. This is taking out a loan. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So like future me is paying this off. Exactly. Well, future somebody. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is the yeah, challenge. Diana, Diana just put into the um, chat uh, a link to uh, a LinkedIn article about Google's approach to measure, measuring mm-hmm. and managing tech debt. It's got some interesting um, categories. Yeah. Yeah, along the lines of what Rob was talking about, the the different types of the different mm-hmm. levels of technical debt. And I wish I could find this other article I just read about how to have healthy technical debt, right? Like mm-hmm. just eliminating technical debt means you're not innovating, basically. 
I would but, agree with that. But how do how does LLM impact? You know, how does LLM play a role in managing or creating technical debt or the right kind of technical debt? Is a really interesting question, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, to me, it's a level three, or it's all whether it's innovation or paying down technical debt by, let's say, moving to the cloud or whatever. I look at it as strategic. And I've always calculated it based on on strategic. So it's the cost of um, if you like in a large corporation, if you're taking on an initiative, when you're putting together the business case for it, there's usually something referring to are you adding to technical debt, eliminating technical debt, reallocating, and in and the reason that I mentioned the move to cloud is because the depreciation expenses that are normally drawn out by the corporation on equipment in their data center kind of get moved from one side of the ledger to the other because you're moving from CapEx to OpEx in one sense. And then you have the quantification of whether or not it's truly OpEx if you're paying a Google or an Amazon or whatever because the monthly fees are not really the same as what you would allocate for a SaaS payment. And can you, you know, there, I, I hear talk, but I haven't seen a lot of written information about it, about um, uh, financial, whatever the um, chartered accountants in Canada or management accountants in Canada versus uh, whatever the association is called in the U.S., the CPA, you know, American, whatever. They're looking at two things right now. One is um, the reclassification of intangible assets because data is so valuable and there's still no legislation around that or in the tax code. And the other part is if you make a move to cloud, should you not be able to write down some of that cost in the same way as you would depreciation for an enterprise data center Hmm. because Hmm. the costs are so tremendously high and you can't, there's no um, equitable way to balance between SaaS payment, which is OPEX and the CapEx for investment in equipment. Yeah. That, that is a huge one right there. The, yeah. the the accountancy issue of of a change like that is is in, is incredible and you know at what point does somebody actually you know call everybody everything to a screeching halt and say you know we're going to get killed by the taxman by doing this yeah um, that rarely happens but it's it's uh, quite real. Um, when you talk about strategic, you know, the level three, um, you know, kind of characteristics and this notion of a maturity model, mm-hmm. I, I, I kind of get it. I kind of, I, I mean, I, I like like the idea of those kinds of that kinds of uh, of a. Um, categorization but how 
it seems it seems one very one dimensional and it, it's there's so much that gets to go into context here i mean you were just talking about you know the change in uh, generally accepted practice as to how you deal with intangible uh right. you know uh data is a is a per, you know is the biggie you know it's just this looming thing thinking sitting over there that gets lumped into <laughs> at least in us accounting into goodwill and i for the life of me i've never understood what the hell are they talking about when they talk about goodwill it's just you know it's like it, it's like a garbage basket that you put everything in there mm. that you just you, you can't you can't account for how you justify but, the difference between your market cap and your actual like yeah. sell it all off for parts value like, exactly. so it's what your brand it's like your brand value the intangible of your brand value yeah but if, <laughs> but if 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 i say if i say to you i you know i'm in the business of selling data selling information i i either get i either generate the data and package it up and sell it to somebody or i take somebody else's data as as an input i use it as a as a as a resource i you know cleanse it i organize it i package it up and i send it and there's some aspect that i own and it's sitting there and where does it live on the books what's the what's the value of that data can you give you me a call number it materials there's there's an interesting thing that that we're talking about when when we're talking about this idea of depreciating technical components mm -hmm. um and in some ways it is because the, the point I was thinking through on this is that anything you build incurs technical debt is in sort of the way I, like you build it, even if you think it's perfect at the moment, it's incurring technical debt. It's interesting because I think the depreciation schedule is similar from it. So yeah. it has maximum value today and then it loses value over time as a, as an asset. And and part of what. I think about is that anytime you build any system, even if you're completely happy with it at the moment, it 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 will accumulate technical debt if it's not maintained, if it's right. Oh, you know, and, yes. and right, because you could have like like mainframes worked 20 years ago. They were great. The fact that you're still using that mainframe and don't have any way to migrate off of it is it's become technical debt, or parts of it have become yeah. technical debt. Right. Um mm -hmm. And so I, I think that there's an element here of ongoing maintenance and continue like like continual reinvestment in your code base to to yeah. be, to keep things from becoming debt is is right. another part of my thinking here. And the reason so, the reason the reason why that's important to me in, in in part of this conversation is that anytime you add new code, new systems, new data into your environment, you are accumulating potential debt, we can call it potential debt, but you're, you're in some ways accumulating maintenance costs on that technology. I, I guess I think yeah. of that as debt, but it's not, it's maintenance costs. No, it is that's, maintenance costs. And, and, and you actually could create formulaically a way to predict that cost. So like predictive maintenance in a plant. Right. That's mm -hmm. a tangible asset against right. which 
predictive, you know, the, the cost of maintenance is, is taken off right. and the asset itself is depreciated. In the case of data or code, I don't see it as necessarily the same reference point as others may for technical debt. You are accumulating debt. It's not technical. It's the cost of operating. <laughs> so, but wait a second. It, this is this. I think is is a really interesting insight. If if we acknowledge that any asset you have has maintenance costs, yeah. and if you don't have a system to main to pay that maintenance cost, it transfers into the debt category. Correct. Okay. So so Correct. interestingly <laughs> enough, right? There's there's intentional technical debt, like what Klaus was talking about, and then there's unintentional technical debt by the decay the needed maintenance of the systems that we build yeah. that I think and then, we and don't then factor you've got, in. And then you've yeah. got one other weird, weird thing happening, which is, you know, these assets that are, you know, depreciating almost down to zero. Suddenly someone comes up with a new way of using this exhaust <laughs> and yeah. it suddenly has value. So all this old data suddenly can be packaged up and used as grist for the mill in machine learning and in AI, because what you're doing is taking past history, using it, and when you package it up correctly, using it as training data, data on which, you know, you have a, a, a new a new piece of equipment, if you want to think of it that way, that suddenly is uh, is making use of it. This notion of using what has previously been thought of as truly exhaust that has no value suddenly has value. Whoa! There you go. You've just changed changed the the equation once again. So, is there a reason to think that you might start to invest more in the maintenance of that of that data and today people are absolutely doing that they're using um stuff that used to be just sitting there in like log files and starting to use that to you know manage that stuff and throw throw the results not just into analytics but back into the you know operation of your of your plant for example so absolutely, but that does not so, argue for for save every scrap of data. No, which, the problem is no. Okay. No, you don't know. Okay. You don't know how long it's going to take for that scrap of data <laughs> to kind of suddenly have value. You okay. don't know at that point how much value it is, and you know at a certain point, maybe the the right thing to do is, as many folks do, they'll compress it they'll they'll um they'll basically put data into mm-hmm. summarized form and they'll they'll keep it around so that if something really big comes up you know they have to kind of go back look for you know um cause for some error or you know uh, backtrack a trace things like that yeah you, you do that you invest in those types of things but yeah it's it's impossible to you know we don't have time machines we don't know what it's what's going to happen but here's the other 
point that's very interesting about this. There's technical debt, there's the cost of maintenance, and then there's the issue of value. How valuable that data is today, was yesterday, will be tomorrow, may be offset, not necessarily in terms of asset value, but value to the organization. If you look at McKinsey or or, uh, Bain, they talk about how the value of of digital transformation decreases from day one and 35% of the value evaporates during implementation. Put that that into the frame. Because it doesn't succeed or because I I guess I'm... Yeah, whether whether it 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 doesn't succeed... That value, the value is lost in terms of what later turns out to be a mismatch. Let's say Uh, you put in X technology to solve Y problem. You think they're a good fit at the time, but either the problem changes because it's an evolving situation or alternatively the technology changes and what you bought six months ago and, and by now would be uh, far different, right? I mean, you're the, there's an ex, there's an asset value, there's an expense, there's a potential to generate revenue. That's why it becomes a very sticky wicket, and why the accountants are scratching their heads. But irrespective of what the accounting side says for tax purposes, I look at our whole frame of reference on technical debt and scratch my head and say why. <laughs> Because to me, this should be operating cost, and it should be paid back or down based on margins you generate from the asset called data. Or so the loss one, of- that's one asset you can use to pay it down, or you know, look to pay it down. That's not the only one. No, no, no. I, I, of course not. Okay. I, I'm just okay. saying, but in you know, a- relative to data. Does does that then create an incentive? Because if you are going to actually account for the cost here to consolidate your work, this this is I'm I'm pulling this a little bit back to that LLM question, right? If if because I I agree with you, we should be properly accounting for the maintenance costs for our systems, and and I I I think I'm I've been using technical debt and maintenance a little interchangeably, but. If if we are saying, hey, we we need to make sure that we are accounting for the maintenance costs of the systems that we're building, mm-hmm. um, does that mean that it is a, a good ROI to have people consolidate the systems they build, like reuse? Because this this is the interesting sure. question to me, right? We're we're in a model right now where most companies LLM aside. Get siloed. They duplicate work. They don't. They don't invest in, you know, consolidation. They're still in this. You know, uh, individual teams make individual decisions. Approach. Mm-hmm. Get out of my right. way. I need to. I need to move quickly. And but there's no that... ROI for actually consolidating the work so that you aren't creating this. This is my problem right now in, in enterprise. Yes. They've created a ton of maintenance cost. I won't call it technical debt. Maintenance costs. For the work that individual teams are doing, and then they they're trying to pass that maintenance cost back to IT operations, whatever, mm-hmm. or they're saddled with their or they're just ignoring it. 
And then the, the company is finding that those maintenance costs become technical debt. I, I point you I point you all to the early experiences with data lakes. Hmm. Okay. Yes. Think about the fact that you know when when they first started being kind of promoted by the vendors, the vendor community, data lakes were these places where hey, just take your data, don't don't tag it. Don't go through all of that <laughs> stuff. You just throw it in the data lake. And you know what? Magically, <laughs> when you go looking for stuff, it you will you'll find it. You'll find it. Yeah, you'll find it. You'll find it in uh five or six different forms. You don't know which one is authentic, you know, is is authenticable or the you know the the authorized mm. version. And so just to your point. Uh, Rob, the idea of doing maybe not data, it's not data compression, it's deduplication. Right. No, this is, I, I, I have a I have an analogy just in, in what my, my workshop looks like, right? I pull my tools, I do my project, I put them in a toolbox or a box, and then you know I'm 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 in a rush finishing. I leave the toolbox sitting in the, you know, I don't, I don't. <laughs> I try to, but I don't always put everything back. And so I have boxes of project tools that should get put put in the right place so they can be and, found and the next the, time. And the spare, the spare parts that got left over when you put the machinery back together and uh. you go, oh, what? <laughs> what? Wait a minute. I have a drawer Tupperware full of those. Yes. Yeah, exactly. That, that, one, that one bolt, but not a nut that goes this with is, it. Well, this no, is, it, this is endemic in human nature is to not right to to not do the collaborative well, to the, the work to to prep for the next this thing go, this actually goes back to to klaus's uh um statement about technical debt taking it on but knowing that you know your future self or some future per some future person is going to have to pay for the fact that I'm doing this now. And, yeah. um, you know. And you also have to consider that technical debt is not a serious game. So it, there, there are cases where it is worth it to take on the technical debt because yeah. you know that the cost of remediating that, that debt is less than the cost of not doing something right now. Yeah. Or, or, like you might not, or you might not know that, that you know, the, the MVP might not actually create value and you're not, yeah. it's not going to be a long-term. Right? You know, the, the reason any, any industry, any enterprise takes on debt and is makes use of the banking systems and, and is exactly that. I'm, I'm, I'm taking on debt now on the premise that by doing that, at some later time, I can pay it down without the same kind right. of, of impact or cost to me. <laughs> I can find some, some I, I will have made more revenue or more, more margin as a result, what, what have you. There's, you know, Part of the whole the whole issue gets down to kind of a, a risk 
kind of an economic risk uh, calculation. But yeah, I mean, if we did not believe in a system where you can take on debt and it's an acceptable practice, we'd still be, you know, we'd still be dealing with, you know, wax string and, and tin cans for communication <laughs> and, and, you know, at an abacus for our, our calculation. Now, if I may digress from the topic a little bit, um, something that occurred to me, particularly Rich, since you mentioned data lakes, is that mm -hmm. one particular aspect of, L of LLMs that I haven't seen in the spotlight is bothering me, and that is archival. The, like these LLMs are evolving Right, they're being constantly modified. And I don't see any discussions about point-in-time recovery. There actually are a few people who are who are having that very conversation for a number of different reasons. The whole idea of um version control on the training set. You know, up until pretty recently, the General knowledge was if you threw a training set at the LLM and then decided some part of it was not kosher, uh, it was there was bias introduced or there was misinformation or disinformation introduced. You can't up until fairly recently, you could not go back and modify just the fact that was you know at issue and then everything would work you literally started from scratch and retrained the llm with the whole 7 billion 13 billion 70 billion parameters at incredible cost when you're talking about these foundations. And you're hoping systems. that you end up with the same result. You, well, you're hoping you not exactly the same result because you you're hoping close that enough. You, you've yeah. you've lim, you've eliminated the bias or the misinformation, but everything else <laughs> works. And of course, you have no really good way of testing whether that happens. Yeah. I, I'm, yeah, I'm also concerned that at a much bigger scale than that. Like, mm. for example, like this week, uh, it came into the news that OpenAI might be in fin financial trouble, that they're accruing debt pretty fast, oh. and that they might not be solvent by 2024. What happens to their models if they go under? <laughs> they will be <laughs> sold off for pennies, <laughs> penny, micro pennies on the dollar yeah. to the likes of Microsoft. Microsoft. I what a thought. Yeah. So so basically, I wow. my my train of thought leads me to a. Do we need an an equivalent of the Internet Archive for LLMs? Well, here's you my question to that. Yeah. If we have an archive for the Internet. To your point, how does it become 
who does the delta between today and when it was frozen as its point in time? That's a good question. I'm sorry, I, I'm not quite following, Joanne. The, okay. Between today so and ChatGPT was the frozen. Yeah. yeah, the model was frozen at at 2021. We're now in 2023, about to be you know close enough to 2024. If we were to have the archive to Klaus's point, because I've thought about this too, the delta between 2021 and 2024 is a big delta, particularly yep. now that certain <laughs> companies like New York Times and whatever are saying, smack on wrist, you cannot use anything that we publish as part of your LLM. Mm -hmm. So A, who does the update to bring it to current date, B, what happens to that archive? Who has who has Use of administration it. of it? Mm -hmm. And how do we continue to evolve the Delta data sets based on a model that we don't know exactly what of the 70 billion parameters has changed? Well, this is the point where resounding silence ensues. I, I love where this is. This has gone, um, and uh, I'm surprised. Why? Yeah, I. Uh, it, it's just <laughs> I was having a very different thought in the whole technical debt conversation. I agree with you, though. The, this whole idea of of what uh, the, the the LLMs themselves are an element of this technical debt, because if you're if you can't and they're because they're not particularly versioned um, that, you know, from a use perspective, there's an element of like, hey, I want version three, I want version four. But they're constantly tuning these models and pruning them and things like that. I and we have no way of the moment. Um, maybe this will evolve of knowing which model is doing what work and having a recreatable result. Um, and, and that is technical debt because yeah. we have no backups. Correct. That's the other wow. part of it. Well, and, and, and we, think about this. Have, we have backups. <laughs> we just don't have, we don't have the kind of snapshots or, you know, kind of, Fine, you know, fine, more fine-grained, smaller delta snapshots that would lead us to, you know, the ability to go through a, a version control style approach that says, "Ooh, something got introduced to the LLM that we want to, you know, uh, eliminate." Uh, what? is actually happening though for two things two two things one is there's a lot more work being done in literally micro targeting or very fine-grained targeting of um the embeddings that go into a an llm and they are in some cases depending on how things have been uh generated able to go back tweak a fact 
if you want to think of it that way, as one of those points, those embeddings. And um, the there's a propagation that says, okay, now it, it all kind of pretty much falls into line. Uh, the, the best one I saw was some folks who took a, a, an LLM and, and kind of put it in a sandbox and uh, made a change to the fact that the Eiffel Tower is in Paris. No, the Eiffel Tower is in Rome. And what happened? And then they were able to go back in a in a basic kind of a a clean room situation, go back, rectify this the fact, and did everything fall back into place appropriately? Did pretty they did a pretty good job. That both says, all right, good news. We can maybe don't have to regenerate these LLMs from scratch every time. Bad news. That means if somebody gets access and starts to do these little micro changes, you know how you know well, this is this is hacker heaven. So you know it's let's put it this way. You know, <laughs> there's a the the whole whole creation of of these things has uh has spawned a you know the you know the good news bad news of of and i'm yeah <laughs> let's say i'm 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 kind of finding myself at at loose ends on some of these things because it's all happening so fast and to klaus's and joanne's point we don't have an internet archive we don't have a we don't have the moral equivalent and we're relying on Microsoft or OpenAI, or at least in some cases, the open source community that's generating a lot of it, although they're also generating all of these variants where you have no idea what their behavior is like. So, I'm, I'm, well, yeah. I'll go ahead. So, going also down the, the path of, well, even if we had. The, the capability of doing snapshots of both the general models on, on our local models. Um, going back to your scenario, Rich, of like needing to undo something that made uh, or, or or that yeah. uh, caused the result to go haywire. Think of you the don't know what it, it which yeah. of your changes caused it. Yeah. So, like, do we need an LLM psychologist? Yeah. No, you have, you're going to have you're going to have LLMs diagnosing and analyzing other LLMs. They will be fine tuned to. to yeah. yeah. No, I mean, you know, it's going to be LLM heal uh, heal thyself. You know, it's going to be a it's going to be a it's going to be a <laughs> it's going to be a circus. Well, and the other question around that is, does this now make the argument for medium and small LLMs to Absolutely. be used, number one? F SLMs, small language S models. Yeah, SLMs. Um, and that's that's number one. And number two, what is the... Everyone has a version of truth. 
what is the version of truth that we can actually rely on? I was starting to write a piece called, I read it on Facebook and how sucking all the data from, you know, the various social media sources creates some of these weird in and of itself creates some of this weird hallucinatory behavior that the LLM spit out. Like the Eiffel tower is not in Rome. Um, you know, there's bias elimination, whatever. But the fine tuning, my question to you, Rich, is in the fine tuning of what's embedded, what are they actually fine tuning? Is it the algorithm? Is it the data set that they originally used to do that embedding? Yes. Where was the provenance on that? Good question. Is there any, you know, when you go back to somebody doing fine tuning, the only the only provenance that you have is looking at the data set that was generated that was thereupon used to to basically be an adjunct or a a, a modification of the LLM. It's a, it's kind of like a putting an overlay on something or a filter, right? And and. The only thing you can do is go back to the kind of the original stuff that they they fired up. And you want to get even worse. What people are doing right now to create fine tuning, you know, it's it's. The poor man's fine tuning is they're going to the foundational LLM and say, generate a data set for me so that I can fine tune my LLM to be an accountant that okay. uh, really understands the um, the tax codes of Canada and the US. And they throw that back in there at the same LLM, they're, they're basically training, they, they're saying, generate your own training set become your own kind of source of, of advanced skills. And then I'll, I'll shoot it back into, into the LLM. Does that make you as nervous as it makes me? I mean, it's extremely, <laughs> that's not fine tuning at all. Really. That does really it's not, heavy handed. That, not, uh, actually, I wouldn't not. even call it tuning. That, that, that's just it's, retraining. It's mm. exactly. But it's being called, you know, a form of, you know, of fine tuning. You go yep. on into the open source right now, folks are going, hey, you know, forget all of the, the expense of fine tuning an LLM or even, a, you know, a, a small 7 billion parameter one. It's simple. Yeah. Have them have it generate, have it generate or something yeah. generate another training set yeah. and throw it on in there. The, the fact that that's called fine tuning, that's the scary part. Like that, that's yeah, really just constraint programming. Like you, it, you, you're setting the constraints of, of your model. Like, yeah. like you don't even need to regenerate it as long as you set the constraints properly. But yeah, yeah that's, this that's is, scary. This, this is starting to be like, you know, taking a, you know, a, a, a low, low resolution copy of a low resolution copy of a low resolution copy until, <laughs> you know, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of like, it's mud. <laughs> I, I think oh, that, back that that's... Carbon, back in the carbon days, it would have this would have been your fourth the fourth carbon. 
Yeah. <laughs> I, I, it feels like we're in the language model equivalent of early 3D rendering. So you, mm. you can take the naive approach and, and take the data points and, and, and connect them, in which case you, you get a polygon. Right. Or you can use splines and smooth out the curves, but those might be might not be accurate. Mm -hmm. um, or, or or a different scenario, like similar scenario, might, might be just like uh, dashboards for your metrics like we, we we well know that that if you if you set your 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 history uh histogram or, or your your x y uh like your over time chart uh and and you tell it to round the the edges it looks pretty but it becomes less accurate yeah. Um, and there's real dangers with that, and and I might smooth out peaks and, and, and valleys that that you end up not noticing until it's too late. I think this um, is what they call, in linguistic terms, the creation of colloquialism. Hmm. Because it has a history, it has an etymology. But what started out as pink has now become maroon. And will continue to get darker and darker over time. And I don't mean that in a, in a metaphorically, oh, she's in a dark place mode. I just mean <laughs> it's not the same as, you know, you started out with vanilla and you end up with chocolate. But you certainly start out with the bare necessity of fact that becomes something so far away from fact over a period of time that it's almost unrecognizable. And worse That's yet, what I'm worried the, the, about. The, all of your systems are relying on it. Yes. As, yeah. Yeah. So to me, this is this is like the creation of colloquial terms, idiom, idioms, whatever you want to call it, um, a joie, for, for lack of a better phrase. I see that happening more and more. And what's really perturbing me is this notion that it was all built at a point in time. Yep. And we have evolved so far past that point in time just by merely introducing this technology. How do we then like keep this from spiraling out of control? Wow, I really love where this conversation led. Uh, it's part of the nature of how we do tw Cloud 2030 discussions, where we can really pursue an interesting avenue for the group that leads into some fascinating thoughts about the technical consequences of these models and how we're using these models. And still leave a bookmark to come back to the original idea, which is do LLMs contribute to technical debt, and system maintenance uh, costs. And we will cover that in a couple of weeks. I hope you will join us in that discussion. You can find out more on our whole schedule at the2030.cloud. I'll see you there. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN, where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently. 
because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly, or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.